City Road podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people. Some critics have, have said that this is a book against planning, and, and no, it isn't. It is not, among other things, because I think that by now, planning is too important to, to be left. Planning is not going to disappear first. We always plan in some way or, or other, and it is so important and powerful to be left in the hands of, of the enemy, right? Of economic leads that are going to use this to orient urbanization to goals of uh profit accumulation and social control and, and things like that. Hello, everyone. Dallas Rogers here, and welcome to City Road Podcast. And do I have a treat for you today? I'm here in London. I'm with Joe Penny, and we have Alvaro, author of Against the Commons, on Zoom. I'll hand over to Joe in a minute, who is talking with the author of Against the Commons about this fantastic new book. This is all part of the 2023 Festival of Urbanism Book Club series. I'll hand over to Joe. So my name's Joe Penny. I'm a lecturer in global urbanism at the UCL Urban Laboratory. And I'm Alvaro Sevilla Huitrago. I'm an associate professor uh, at the Department of Town and Regional Planning at Universidad Politecnica de Madrid. Well, first of all, uh, congratulations on writing such a wonderfully interesting book, Alvaro. Really pleased and excited to be in conversation with you about it. For the benefit of our listeners, especially those who've not read the book, Planning Against the Commons is a theoretically ambitious and expansive, as well as, I think, richly uh, and substantively empirical book about the problem of urbanization under capitalism and the role of planning as an active agent in that problem and the fate of the commons as the target of capitalist urbanization. And more specifically, it's a book about how different historical uh, conjunctures of capitalist urbanization um, have come together um, and have tended to decollectivize society and to disrupt and disorganize subaltern collectivities and commoning practices especially at the interface of production and reproduction. So that's at least my pressy of the book, but over to you now. So how did you come to write this book and what was animating you from the outset? Yeah, so first of all, of course, uh, thank you for having me in this uh, podcast. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. And in terms of the background of the book, I would say that it was in a way born as as a response to the need uh, to come to terms with the dismal state of uh, planning agendas. Um, when I was a practitioner uh, some 15 years ago, you know, I was working uh, as a planner back then and I became very dissatisfied with um, the lack of, uh, not only of political will, I would say, but, but especially the lack of technical instruments and institutional platforms uh, when it came to prioritizing the needs and, and capacities of, of uh, deprived communities in, in planning policies. And whenever I raised my concerns about this, uh, other colleagues, uh, especially older colleagues, I would say, uh, you know, they would say, well, you know, these problems are beyond the scope of our techniques. Uh, planning is not meant uh, to, to make the revolution. So I began to ask these uh, kind of crucial questions like what can planning achieve? Uh, what are the goals of, of planning? What is the project of planning? So I went looking for answers in the literature and what I found, I mean, it, it struck me that those 
texts with a greater capacity to shape the self-perception of the self-perception of the discipline. Uh, you know, narratives in the genre of panoramic planning history and normative planning theory, they usually pay little attention to this problem, to the gap that exists between what planning is uh, supposed to be and what planners actually do, uh, particularly in relation to vulnerable, uh, vulnerable uh, populations. Um, of course, there are lots of extraordinary critical accounts focusing on particular uh, cases and periods and cities. But when it comes to big picture narratives, uh, most of them tend to legitimize planning as something intrinsically good, something intrinsically benign, uh, paying little attention to the predicament of popular groups, uh, how they experience the, the many dramas of urbanization, how these groups try to cope with, with, with uh, these dramas by producing their own space. So I felt this was really uh, problematic because, you know, these big picture narratives are, I think, the texts that tell planners what they do and, and who they are. Um, and and uh, this is why I, I felt the need uh, to, to write this kind of counter narrative to challenge these uh, prevailing ideas. Uh, I wanted the book to, to pay greater attention to, to the capacity of these vulnerable populations to use space as a source of collective power and the impact that planning initiatives often have on these uh, communities. I think one of the things that the, the book does really well is to develop that kind of counter narrative and a sort of counter genealogy of planning, uh, challenging in different ways the stories that planners like to tell themselves about this kind of innocent and benevolent purpose and promising uh, promise of their prof uh, profession. So can you sort of lay out for listeners how your book develops this alternative ge genealogy of planning from below and how we can, and this is to borrow from your own words, situate the past with respect to our current predicament and the challenge of building more democratic urban futures? Yes. Uh, well, the, the short uh, answer would be by looking at planning from uh, from the opposite uh, way that you you usually find in this uh, narrative so the, the i would say that the summary of the book would be that that it puts first um this uh how these communities especially deprived communities um appropriate and organize space as a source of power and autonomy and this comes first this comes first and, and then comes how the attempts to neutralize these capacities, these social spaces, the commons, have influenced and sometimes uh, shaped um, the evolution of urbanization and, and, urban, and urban planning. And I would say that to a certain extent, how they have also influenced uh, the very evolution of, of capitalism itself. Insofar as capitalism can be understood as a spatial formation that needs to organize space uh, in order to um, uh, to develop and, and survive and, and consolidate, right? So, in terms of um, the you know the the design of this genealogy uh, and the selection of of cases in the in the book, I. Um, 
I would say that following this this attempt to look at the predicament of vulnerable populations and their capacities first, I went looking for um, these um, experiences where you see um, uh, these communities, working class communities, deprived communities, popular groups uh, more generally, um, deploying this, this uh, capacities of uh, spatial appropriation and collective territorialization um, in a way that allows them to reproduce independently or relatively independently from direct market influence and state control. Um, and, and to, you know, to unfold this um, capacity of, of uh, to, to, to implement collaborative practices and institutions and collective territorialities that sustain these uh, social spaces, right? Um, so, in terms of the, the selection of, of cases, I and, and the friction that exists between these capacities uh, by popular groups and then the attempts to uh, dismantle them or to neutralize them uh, by uh, social and economic elites, and at some point also by states and, and planners themselves when planners enter, enter the picture. So in terms of following this kind of friction and clash throughout history, I went um, looking for um, places where we could find places that were key sites of regulatory experimentation at crucial transitional stages in the development of, of capitalism. And this usually coincided with the emergence of new accumulation uh, regimes when certain places um, went through strong developmental and restructuring pressure as a result of attempts by economic elites to position these places as centers, to promote these places as centers of the capitalist world economy, right? Um, so it is in these contexts where, where you think that where you can find these frictions and collisions between um, collective ca capacities on the one hand and capacities of commoning on the one hand, and on the other hand, this uh, urge by elites and states to use space to mediate these attacks on, on, on commons that... Um, push forward and advance new forms of planning policy, new, new forms of spatial politics more generally, right? So in terms of the, the selection of cases, I think that this was um, especially important as a methodological strategy. And I would say that in terms of the cases and that compose this genealogy in the book, it is also important to stress because the, the, the book focuses, the four historical chapters of the book uh, focus on uh, Western cases. So maybe we will talk about this later, but it's uh, first chapter is uh, English hinterlands um, uh, in, the 19, in the 18th, 19th centuries. Then the second chapter is New York and Chicago within the, the 1850s and the First World War. Third chapter is Berlin during the Weimar Republic, and, and fourth chapter is Milan since the 1960s. And, and some could say, well, if you're interested in revealing this uh, dispossessive nature of spatial politics, why focus on Western cases? You know, you should look at uh, the colonial world instead. 
And, and this is fair enough. Uh, of course, the history of imperialism and colonialism provides many examples of processes of aggressive displacement and aggressive destruction of the commons. And indeed, these colonial intersections uh, are part of the book's uh, narrative in some chapters. But I thought that it was also important to, um, to show how this process of, of uh, decommunization unfolds in the capitalist core. Because we sometimes forget that capitalism also had to be built in all these places that I mentioned. At some point in history, they were also the peripheries of capital accumulation. Uh, in the book, I call them near peripheries or inner peripheries. And capital had to break its way through them in this process of internal colonization, right? Um, so yes, I think that this this is this was a an important uh, reason for the selection of cases. And then in terms of the time span, as I was saying before, I wanted the book to cover a, a broad uh, temporal um, span. It covers over three centuries. Um, because I feel that these big picture narratives are the ones that allow to extract some kind of structural meaning out of the empirical material that, that we uh, explore. So I wanted to show how these processes of this nature of uh, this possession is something structural to the discipline. It's not an accident. It is a structural right um so yes in terms of the 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 design of the genealogy and the uh path that the book uh covers i think this this these were the main reasons for that yeah so you've anticipated one of the questions i was going to ask which was in some ways about this kind of emission of global majority urban contexts um because i think in many respects the book is addressing issues and dynamics that are pertinent to many of those places right especially in the present moment of speculative urbanism and not so much in a kind of crude teleological way but in a way that seems generative of comparative thinking can you speak a little bit about the, the methodological choices you made and how you think that the book is still speaking beyond the spatial and temporal confines of, yeah. you know, the UK's hinterlands, um, New York and Chicago in the 19th century, Weimar, Berlin, and then uh, Milan in the kind of crisis of Fordism? Yes, of course. And of course, I... I, I hope that the book speaks also to not only to scholars of these particular periods, but to the broader uh, um, audience of urban studies and, and historical sociologists and, 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 and social movements and activists and, and, and so on. Um, because this particular dialectic, this collision of this clash of different forces that I, um, that I mentioned earlier, um, I think that you can identify that in many other places and periods, and it's still ongoing. And actually, in the conclusion of the book, I, I try to um, take this this same kind of uh, interpretive uh, uh, strategy to other places beyond the West uh, and, and and more contemporary. But in terms of the the what would be like the bare bones of this uh, dialectic. Uh, or a struggle, this dialectical struggle throughout history, I would say that um, what I observed 
during my research is that in, in, in all four cases and other uh, experiences that could have been included in the book, you, uh, you find in these contexts with uh, undergoing a strong restructuring pressure that I mentioned, you have you find population groups facing difficulties, especially prior populations going through crisis of reproduction. These groups manage to appropriate space to create some realms of autonomy. And, and in so doing, they develop more or less uh, sophisticated commons and forms of self-reproduction, right? Um, and these modes of this uh, spaces of autonomy, these commons, these um, uh, strategies of self-reproduction allow these groups to um, reproduce themselves themselves outside the the dominant order to contradict the dominant order, which is particularly problematic under capitalism, I would say, because capitalism is is a system that is driven by inherently destabilizing and contradictory uh, tendencies. So it constantly needs to secure a a coherent long-term social basis or social orders or social order to to develop and to um, uh, secure... uh, expansion and and growth right and so whenever uh, some of these groups contradict this order and especially they contradict the, the need that capitalism has to include to internalize the reproduction of these uh, groups and especially of working people to internalize the reproduction of, of working people within the machinery of the system whenever these groups manage to reproduce themselves outside the system uh we are likely to find some uh conflict in 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 that sense right so at some point um these capacities in these social spaces become an obstacle for capitalist attempts to to align these forms of reproduction of popular reproduction with economic imperatives or to impose particular forms of social order and as I said, this is especially evident in places subject to a strong restructuring uh, pressure, right? And and with this, and, and in these cases, we see how this strategy and and process unfolds. So, um, new spatial techniques, new spatial strategies appear, targeting these uh, these places and these social spaces. They sometimes succeed not always i should say because in the book we also find uh, cases and experiences where where the achievement of this dispossession of the commons is only partial or it simply fails in the long term but it sometimes planning techniques and spatial politics sometimes succeed and a particular form of uh, commoning is uh, dismantled uh, destroyed, fragmented at some point that can be co-opted or incorporated into the system. So these forms of autonomy, this particular form of commoning and autonomy disappears. But soon we see the rise of new forms and new strategies of collective appropriation, new territorializations, new appropriations of space, and new social spaces emerge, and so on. So, and the story starts again, and you see how this dialectic unfolds. So this is something that I, I think we can find in 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 many uh, different places. Not only, of course, in the experiences I focus on the book, 
um, and as I mentioned um, in, in the conclusion of the book, I tried to trace this the same kind of dynamics in, in other places in the majority world and, and so on. In terms of what we find in, in the historical chapters of the book, the ingredients, the main ingredients, I try to, to incorporate um, different forms of uh, commoning in each chapter, different frontiers of commoning and different frontiers of dispossession. I make the argument that uh, particular forms of commoning become especially strategic in particular historical stages and, and context of capitalist development. So in the book, I focus first on material commons, on access to land, on issues of property, and the usufruct that um, these communities uh, could get from common land and things like that. Uh, and then the rest of the chapters focus on more immaterial, uh, relational, uh, or social commons, I would say. So in the second chapter, we have um, an exploration of uh, the problem of publicity. So issues of public space, public facilities, and how they are used to shape public behaviors. Uh, and, and collective imaginaries of the city. In the third chapter, I use the notion of centrality commons. Uh, here I draw on Henri Lefebvre's um, uh, conception of centrality, of the notion of centrality to challenge dominant uh, or mainstream views of uh, centrality in, in urban studies and, and in urban planning and trying to, to explain how urban hierarchies are produced they are not natural uh, they are actively produced and how this uh, hierarchical and uneven relations between different parts of the city can be mobilized um, by popular groups to try to sustain themselves in a hostile context um, or they can be mobilized to promote, you know, uh, the generation of profit and, and, and the consolidation of hegemonic uh, imaginaries of uh, urbanity and, and, and the metropolis. And, and then the fourth uh, frontier of commoning in the fourth historical chapter on Milan, I focus on issues of uh, creativity, collective creativity, as something that, again, uh, can be mobilized as a commons uh, and place-making dynamics um, related to creativity, to collective creativity, can be deployed as commons, or they can be uh, captured. In this case, uh, captured and incorporated into the spatial machinery of, of uh, urban capitalism. Yeah, I think the way that you unpack commons in this book, as you know, commons as material grounds for provisioning, commons of publicity. Um, commons of centrality and then and then the last chapter being about the commons of creativity is one of for me the highlights of the book as a way of disentangling these different ways in which commons work and the way they relate to one another and how they relate to one another often in quite reinforcing ways um, and so the kind of the grounds for material provisioning and forms of publicity can kind of also become form uh, platforms of politicization and for imagining different urban futures. And I think in a really interesting way that comes across so nicely in this book. Can you tell me or speak a little bit to the evolving strategies of statecraft 
in relation to those different kinds of commons and actually some of the ambivalence of urban statecraft in relation to those commons. Because it's not always a case of trying to demolish the commons or completely do away with the commons. It's often a case of trying to reimagine and in some ways civilize the commons. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Very well put. And thank you for that question, because it's, it's crucial, especially to interrogate the identity of planners, because um, as I mentioned earlier, the identity of planners have been, has been shaped by these narratives that tell a part of the story. When state planning uh, um, plays a more progressive uh, role in this in these stories, and then we um, tend to forget or or to um, uh, yes to to be blind to this uh, other uh, more uh, problematic aspects of of of. Uh, spatial politics uh, driven by state initiatives and so on. So in terms of the role of state, which in a way is, is a way to, to also speak about the role of planning per se, uh, I, I would say that uh, state and planning play very different. I mean, they, the book is covering over three centuries, as I said, so it's a long story. And, and these institutions and the discipline itself um, adopts uh, very different strategies from period uh, to period. So in some cases, we see the full force of a dispossessive uh, uh, technique uh, going against um, uh, access to land, uh, the, the, the bones that uh, these communities have with uh, resources, and, and their capacities to build their communities around those resources through self-regulated uh, um, uh, governance strategies and, and so on. In some cases, we have this very bleak picture of, of planning. In some other cases, however, what we see is uh, a completely different um, counter of planning, uh, where planning is, presents itself as a progressively minded, progressively minded uh, discipline, um, which is essentially uh, working for the benefit of uh, these deprived groups, uh, and, and especially in the second chapter where I focus on the period of urban reform, the classical period of urban reform in the second half of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. This is the classic period where uh, planning historians present, this is the emergence of planning in, in, in conventional stories. Uh, and, and planning appears as, as a sort of uh, this benign technique willing to palliate the, the worst aspects of industrial urbanization, right? And and in a in a way, of course, uh, this is absolutely uh, true. I, I mean, um, urban reformers uh, during this period provided uh, services that were essential for these deprived communities, and they were these services were badly needed in in these contexts. What we usually forget is that with these facilities and services, and, and I'm referring here to public parks, uh, playgrounds, community centers, settlement houses, and so on. With these services and these facilities, these provision facilities came also with a, sub, uh, a, a hidden strategy, I would say, to use these services to re-educate the working class, 
basically to re-educate the public behaviors of the working class and to somehow try to replace actually existing commons as they have been developed by these uh, popular groups with a sort of uh, new commons, a surrogate commons controlled from above. Um, so in this case, yes, uh, urban reformers were providing essential services for these neighborhoods, but at the same time, we usually forget this darker side of the of the story. Um, then we move to the third chapter, and we see uh, this is the in Berlin in the 1920s. This is a chapter where we finally see the integration of these different uh, realms of policy making. You know, housing policies. Um, uh, a reflection about uh, the distribution of land uses in a metropolitan scale, um, the attempt to organize urban hierarchies at this larger scale, um, and and also things that went uh, that were relatively sophisticated by uh, at that time, such as the the attempt to incorporate. Uh, imaginaries and visual discourses about the city in these attempts to, to promote this new idea of a cosmopolitan urbanism and, and so on. And now here we have planners working for the state within the state. This was not the case in the previous chapter during the urban reform. This was mainly um, middle class or bourgeois reformers working outside the state. And at some point the state incorporates those strategies within its own uh, machinery. In the third chapter in the 1920s, we already have a state that is uh, trying to drive these uh, mechanisms more actively. The thing is that um, the strategies, the particular mechanisms, of course, change because the commons uh, under attack uh, are different. Uh, but the ultimate goal for me is, is uh, relatively similar in the sense that the attempt here is to try to neutralize the capacities of these working class uh, uh, groups in, in neighborhoods to, to build alternative, uh, in this case, alternative structures of centrality that will allow these communities to um, to actually consolidate that sort of, of uh, uh, political antagonism that in some cases in Berlin, managed to, to, to actually challenge um, um, elite uh, visions of the city and the very capacity of the state to, to govern the, the, this emerging metropolis, right? And then in the fourth chapter, the story uh, shifts again, and we have a very different configuration or topology of, of uh, these different forces where... Um, Fourth chapter, as I said, focuses on uh, Milan since the 1960s. So in this case, um, what I'm arguing is that these creativity commons I was referring to uh, were a, a key aspect of uh, uh, the project of autonomy, of autonomous groups in the 1960s and 1970s in Italy and Milan in particular. Uh, a key aspect in the sense that these groups of working class people, you know, uh, underground uh, culture uh, movements, uh, feminist groups, um, and, and a very diverse array of, of uh, subjectivities, used these uh, collective capacities to reimagine 
urban space in the face of urban decline and to develop this kind of uh, grassroots urban regeneration in the 1960s and especially in the 1970s when Italy and particularly Milan was already ongoing, entering the, the crisis of the 1970s and, and some of these places were undergoing really um, um, problematic crisis of, of, of reproduction. So these capacities and these uh, collective capacities to use creativity to reinvent these obsolete spaces to um, endow them with new meanings and new uh, dynamism and, and so on, uh, stay there in, in the subsequent and very different political and economic context from the 1980s on, uh, when these strategies of collective appropriation and in some cases, some of the agents that were uh, active protagonists in, in these uh, autonomous movements in the 1960s and 70s um, tried to keep, they keep using this, this kind of approaches and collective territorializations in order to survive. And in this case, it's the story is not about dismantling these capacities or attacking these capacities because in this period 1980s on and especially more recent decades what we see is that um, the local state and uh, corporate actors are finding it increasingly difficult to um repurpose the city as a site of accumulation, as a site of capital accumulation. So in some cases, these uh, grassroots uh, movements that are still there trying to reimagine their spaces, trying to um, um, uh, resignify their neighborhoods and so on, they become an opportunity. In this case, as I was saying, it's not a matter of destroying the commons, but actually of trying to incorporate the commons, or at least the part that part of the commons that uh, uh, is capable of producing new value out of the ruins of the previous period, out of the ruins of the industrial city, right? So in these cases, we see this kind of very interesting dialectic where the state tries to, and planners uh, working for the state, try to um, minimize or neutralize um, those aspects of the commons that promote political antagonism and conflict and so on. And at the same time, they try to promote and, and, and advance these other aspects of commoning that uh, have a, a, a capacity to uh, bring new sources of uh, wealth, of profit, and, and and value, right? So it's a very different uh, position for planners here. It's a more problematic and, and complex uh, position, but I would say that it is also one that uh, I think we should take as an opportunity. But because in this case, what we are seeing is that um, the local state uh, economic players are no longer interested in um, completely dismantling the commons. They have to cope, they are trying to find ways to cooperate with the commons and with commoners. So um, this, I think, signals uh, uh, an important weakness 
on the part of this uh, uh, urban machine growth that um, neoliberal urbanism has become in, in recent uh, decades. And from that point, I take uh, I take it as an opportunity to reflect about potential uh, different trajectories for the future. Yeah, I think one of the really interesting things that comes out of those four chapters, especially when you read them sequentially, as I think they're kind of intended to be read, right? Because they do follow this um, particular logic in terms of how you unpack the commons and how you unpack um, the local state or urban government or central government's relationship to those commons is that you're constantly seeing this dialectic between the popular conviviality and kind of untamability of the commons and the local state's attempts to appropriate the commons, to tame them, to civilize them um, through the provision often of these resources. So it's not always necessarily a negative agency. There is some positive element to this as well, through the provision of these new resources. But then the commoners always exceeding the logic of those resources, how they're supposed to be used, how they're supposed to be um, engaged with. And I was thinking if there was to be a present day chapter of the book, um, you know, because the book is very historical in its orientation and there's not a kind of contemporary moment chapter. I was thinking there's an interesting irony here that current struggles in cities, particularly cities that are experiencing um, moments of kind of austerity, um, cities like London, the one I'm speaking from, a lot of the struggles that we're seeing, struggles for social reproduction, are organized around the resources of previous eras, social infrastructures, public housing, but also the parks of the 19th century, um, even the libraries that were kind of gifted by philanthropic colonizers in the 19th and early 20th century. And so there's an interesting kind of historical twist that the resources that were given in order to tame commoners are now becoming the platforms of politicization once again. And they're doing so not in a way that I think is just trying to kind of get back what we once had in the form that it was, but actually really to more radically democratize. So it's a kind of a double movement of, first of all, stop closing these resources, but also in addition, give us more democratic management of these resources so that we can use them in a way um, that speaks more to our needs. Yes, totally, totally. I mean, uh, if you, any of this, uh, any, any of the experiences I explore in the book and, and any of the, if you look at this kind of dynamics elsewhere, what you usually find is this astonishing recalcitrant character of commoners their capacity to salvage even the 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 you know the the the, the wastelands uh, you know from the very first chapter where where i speak about common land and wasteland and how wasteland supposedly wasteland was actually used as a source of uh, resources and and informal incomes for by by peasants and and uh, landless uh, working populations in the in the in rural realms in in England, you you constantly see these capacities to reinvent space, and and this I think should be taken as a, as an important lesson I think for planners and urban designers. I am my my background is as an architect and an urban designer, 
and and we are usually um educated in a certain obsession uh with uh the the, the materiality of uh, physical objects uh how they are designed their morphology and so on and when we look at this kind of experiences it i think it's an important lesson to 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 see that the most important thing is not actually the material configuration of a, of a particular place but how it is used and how, so and, and and of course certain places are specifically designed to prevent particular uses and this we could talk about this a, a lot but even in those cases we we see this amazing capacity to this amazing collective uh, capacity to reimagine to reinvent cities and especially in the, in the fourth chapter of the book in milan we are seeing we, we are talking about places that were severely damaged by by a dramatic uh industrial crisis uh, and and even so you see these groups uh with this uh, of course um many of them going through uh, through a lot of misery, but at the same time being able to do things that the administration and and the, the municipality was increasingly incapable of doing. That is to, to bring life to these spaces, to these ruins of, of uh, the previous uh, or decaying uh, industrial uh, period, right? So, so yes, I think this, this is an, an important... You, I agree with you. It's an important lesson that we should take into account. These capacities of of uh, salvage uh, or salvaging, commoning and salvaging come together. Amanda Huron has written uh, beautifully about this. And and what we, you were saying, I mean, different authors have emphasized this. Uh, Massimo De Angelis, for instance, who is of course a key um, a key thinker of uh, uh, these kind of problems in the realm of the social sciences has emphasized how the commons, yes, of course, it allows this kind of alternative uh, worlds independent from the market and the state, but at the same time in our current uh, times, uh, any project of commoning has to assume that it has to be built upon the infrastructures that are already there. Right, so it's a kind of not only of creating worlds outside the capitalist urban system, but actually of finding of using this urbanization, uh, this urban world that we live now on, uh, to use it as a platform and to deploy these capacities to of reimagination to um, to build alternative uh, urban futures. Yeah, and I think this surplus of commoning that you're talking about this unsubduable nature of it is is quite important for this book because i'm not sure if this was necessarily an intention but there's an a reading of this book that becomes more and more pessimistic as you go through so of course you start with the enclosures which is this awfully violent process of ripping people from the from the land but then as you progress through the chapters one of the things that really struck me was that the local state or the state is becoming much more subtle and insidious in the way that it's engaging with the commons. And there's this, we end with Milan and the capture or the kind of reappropriation of culture in a way that really resonated with, I think, kind of Mark Fisher's 
ideas around capitalist realism and the idea that even the creative expressions of commoning can themselves be wrapped into the the latest round of accumulation. But I think because you have this excess that's always there in the book, there's always then that glimmer of hope, which leads into the final chapter where you more explicitly engage in a kind of more hopeful register in relation to planning, which is where my final question comes. So the books at one level a deeply critical historical genealogy of planning as an institution that disrupts, that disorganizes and that displaces the commons. But at the same time, it never reads, I think, as an outright rejection of planning. I think you engage quite carefully with what you call latent utopian impulses with planning, the kind of subterranean emancipatory possibilities of planning. And you also, in this last chapter, I think very interestingly, speak directly to planners. You engage planners as the audience of this last chapter. You draw on ideas and vocabularies of radical planning from Friedman and Sandercock. And then you also address activists by cautioning that purely anti-statist projects have limited reach. So how do you make sense then of the potential role of the planner in a project of communist urbanization Especially, I think, in this current moment when planning, particularly in the UK, but I think definitely elsewhere also, is moving further away from being a public practice to being increasingly a private practice. So where do you hold hope for planning in that context? Yeah. Uh, Yes. Thank you for that question, because it also allows me to clarify, because some critics have have said that this is a book against planning. And and no, it isn't. It is not. Uh, Among other things, because I think that by now, planning is too important to to be left. Planning is not going to disappear first. We always plan in some way or or other. And it is so important and powerful to be left in the hands of, of the enemy, right? Of economic leads that are going to use this to... Um, to to orient urbanization uh, to to uh, goals of uh, profit accumulation and social control and and things like that. So that first of all, we you were talking about the excess of commoning, the fact that commoning always has this, it's always is in excess vis-a-vis um, this this possessive uh, practices, and I would say that there's also an excess in planning uh, because of the very nature of how the discipline has been built, discursively built. You know, this uh, goes back to our previous discussion about how normative planning theory frames planning and so on and so forth. Because of how the the discipline has been built, I think there's an indelible um residue of uh um potentiality in at least in some of the discourses and ideologies that uh, planning usually mobilizes even if this is often done uh, as a sort of uh, you know a curtain or a, or a, a way to conceal what is going on behind that that curtain and i have to to recall here uh one thing that i discuss in the book um um, at some point is uh, E.P. Thompson, Edward Thompson, the, the social historian, and how he engages the problem of the law 
of rights um, in his uh, book, Wicks and Hunters. And how he says, uh, well, yes, um, during the, the emergence of the, the rule of law ideology in the 18th century in, in, in Britain, um, the law was written, the law was written uh, for, to the benefit of uh, the ruling class, but the law could not be unfair. Going to be completely unfair. There was always um, a residue or a nexus that, in some cases, um, deprived populations could use to go against those ruling classes. And because um, this was an essential uh, piece in the um, institutional machinery of the state at that time, it was important to 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 identify how the law was a site of struggle. It was not only a, a simple uh, instrument in the hands of the powerful, it was a site of struggle. And I would say that we have to conceive planning in this, in the same terms as a site of struggle. And urbanization itself, I, I would say it's a site of struggle. So in terms of how planning can be mobilized uh, for this alternative uh projects of urbanization, I would say, of course, it's very difficult. It will require massive efforts and, and, and massive mobilization of uh, different social forces and massive awareness um, by not only by planners, but especially by social movements and activists of how planning has been used uh, in history uh, when it came to to dealing with the commons so and i hope the book contributes in that regard to to raise this kind of awareness but in in terms of how uh this potentially emancipatory excess in planning ideologies can be mobilized for a better urban future i would say that uh of course planners need to adopt a much more humble position they have to recognize and prioritize uh, I was talking about the needs and capacities of these uh, vulnerable communities, the capacities of this of these communities. What they, what I hope the book shows is that these communities often have the capacity to produce their own space according to their everyday uh, reproduction needs. So I think that planners should uh, pay more attention to, to this kind of, of capacities and try to foster them or, or, or to provide space for them to, to unfold. And this can be done in, in several ways. Of course, uh, planners working from within the state, I think they should try to mobilize their techniques and, and knowledge and procedures and platforms to try to, to first to create a space for commoning. You know, and this sometimes, I, as I imagine this, this has to do with um, getting rid of certain uh, limits that uh, planning policies sometimes impose on this, particularly, particularly on these groups. So it's not only about an active attempt to promote the commons, but to allow the commons to, to happen. As I would say, in some cases, it's already happening, but this is happening as I was saying before, uh, to use the commons as a source of, of uh, an, as a new source of, of uh, wealth and profit, uh, right? Why did we let this happen? Not for profit, but for 
the everyday reproductive needs of these communities. That would be interesting to, to see, right? Of course, planners can engage their um, their professional uh, knowledge of uh, the mechanisms and procedures uh, to, uh, to, to try to help and facilitate these kind of processes. I'm not saying anything new in this sense, as you were saying. The tradition of radical planning has long reflected uh, about this, John Friedman especially. John Friedman uh, used to, to say that um, uh, the planner in, in, in this uh, alternative form of radical planning is simply a member of the community trying to uh, work with the rest of the community. Uh, to, th this doesn't mean that uh, it, it's his, he or she is uh, going to, to make a living out of it. Uh, unfortunately, John Freeman was not very, <laughs> very uh, optimistic about that. But um, when it comes to, to engaging these kind of processes, if we recognize the initiative, the capacity, this, this initiative, this capacity is to, to, plan for on below, I think we should start uh, thinking about, um, yes, um, holding a very different, more humble position. But I would say that um, in, in terms of these questions, what is more difficult for me, I mean, I think it's relatively easy to think how planners could help or facilitate these kind of processes. What is more difficult for me is, uh, and I think this is a challenge uh, right now, if we want to engage these kind of questions, is to 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 think, to identify what is, who are going to um, to bring this uh, to bring about this project? Who are going to push uh, this project forward? Who are the members of the commoner class? In the conclusion, I I talk about this. I speculate about this idea of communist urbanization, you know, an, an alternative post-capitalist urbanization that is based on commons instead, in, instead of commodification. And who are the members of this commoner class, especially when we are talking about that at a planetary scale, because of course, uh, right now we have to think about these issues uh, at that scale. This I think is, is the biggest challenge for me thinking about this and and trying to to elucidate what how this uh kind of very complex coalition of different interests in different geographies and so on how how is it possible that these forces these popular forces will come together to try to to uh, promote a, an alternative kind of urbanization. I think that is the biggest biggest challenge, even more than thinking what uh, what planners can do or how they can help in this in this process. Yeah, huge collective challenge for all of us to think about. Thank you so much, Alvaro. That was a fantastic conversation. And uh, to anybody listening. Make sure your library gets a copy of this. Put it on your reading lists. Um, really invaluable book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Joe and Dallas. Wonderful conversation. I hope we, we keep it going. <laughs> <laughs>